episode 17 of the Water Break Podcast. Here's your host, Heather Jennings. Welcome to Water Break, where we try to bridge the gap between water operators and engineers. In today's episode, we're going to have two guests discuss the idea of gain, train, and retain the upcoming or new generation of water industry workforce. Shay Donovan is the education coordinator for the Pinellas County Utilities South Cross Bayou Education Program. She is based out of a 33 MGD water reclamation facility in Florida. Shay works with kindergarten through 12th grade students to educate them on the municipal side of water. From learning what not to flush in the water sector, Shay conducts facility tours, classroom teach-ins, writes curricula for teachers, and even comes up with some pretty creative activities to engage and entertain students. Shay holds a master's degree in soils and environmental sciences. Welcome, Shay. Thank you. Welcome. We also have Paula Jackson joining us from the Vermont Rural Water Association as their apprenticeship program coordinator. Paula has been a water resource professional for 37 years. She started in water resources with the Air Force in 1984. Paula is also a Class 4 water operator and a general industry and construction OSHA outreach trainer. Welcome, Paula. Thank you. All right, ladies, I am very excited that you have joined me today to discuss the topic of gaining, training, and retaining new industry professionals. I really wanted to talk to you both as you're both addressing this topic in very different but very essential ways. But first, before we start, let me ask you both, why do you feel the water industry is important? The water resources profession is is definitely an essential type uh, resource that we need. We only have a certain amount of water on the planet Earth, and it's important that we use that water and then we treat it to return it to the environment so that we can keep reusing it. So in order to do this, we need professionals that actually care. I call them water geeks, but you know, people that are really, truly, yeah. truly vested in this career field because it is. And, and when you start going to a conference like National Rural Water, where I met you, those people all just really care about drinking water and water resources and, and their jobs. They're, they're fully vested. So we need to bring more people into the field, the younger generation, to keep that going and to keep our water resources as a usable resource. Yeah, I call it the water bug. You kind of stay in the field. Yeah. How about you, Shay? Well, I definitely got the water bug. I can say that when I went to college, I was not thinking about the water industry. I actually went to college to study soils and chemistry because I'm a plant geek. So you can't grow good plants if you don't have water. So um, I think to me, why the water industry is important is it's, to me, it's pretty simple. It's life. If we don't have water, we'd all be dead. And I wouldn't have the hundreds of plants that I do. And I don't know why I'm even admitting that, but (laughs) um, (laughs) you have to protect what's important, I guess. And so it is a very passionate industry. And I, I do second what Paula says. These are very passionate people and you can get that water bug. And once you get bit, you're, you're not getting out. That's, that's for sure. Awesome. And just to side note, I can't keep a plant alive. So maybe we should talk about that later. (laughs) Okay. Well, in preparing for this conversation, I read an article by Brookings that back in 2016, nearly 1.7 million workers were directly involved in designing, constructing, operating, and governing U.S. water infrastructure. And these people are aging and expected to retire. And in fact, we're significantly older than the national median, which is 42.2 years old in our industry. We're around 46.4 years, and many call this a flood or silver tsunami of retiring that's happening in our industry. And it concerns me. And Paula, you and I actually met at National Rural Water, like you mentioned before, during a session talking about aging workforce. What concerns do you have about it? It is definitely a, an issue, not just in Vermont, but across you know the United States. And it's true. And I want to say, just from eyes on you know the different water systems I work with in Vermont, I, I know all the water, wastewater operators, a very small state. That average age of 46 that you were talking about, I think is a little bit higher here. There's actually right now so many people that are retiring, especially after COVID. I think a lot of people 
that were maybe going to hold out another five or 10 years are now like, nope, I'm doing it now. Life is short. Um, so I really think that COVID may have driven it to even a worse place because I think a lot, you know, if you look around Vermont, there are so many uh, utilities and municipalities that are hiring and it's hard to find people to get them interested and get them to catch the water bug, especially the younger generation. And it's, it, you know, it's a, it's a field that requires a lot of different skill sets, you know, uh, microbiology, communications with your customers, uh-huh. chemistry, you have to work to get certified, you have to keep up your certification. So there's a lot more to it than a lot of other jobs. But my biggest concern is that it's really hard to find a younger generation to come in and take the the place of these older generations, especially the ones, like I said, that are, they're like, okay, COVID hit, I'm out of here yeah. instead of waiting another 10 years. So that those are my concerns. Great. Thank you. Shay, what is your perspective? I mean, you're in a larger facility. Yes, I am out of a 33 MGD in central Florida, well, west coast of central Florida, I guess you could say. Um, we have a lot of the same issues in Florida in general. A lot of people are retiring. And I think to Paula's point, I think COVID definitely exacerbated that. A lot of people who were like thinking maybe I have two or three years finally said, you know what? Yeah, I, I don't want to do this anymore. <laughs> or uh-huh. Maybe it's time to go. Um, so we do have those same issues. But I also want to highlight an issue that I think is equally as important, and that is the institutional knowledge that we're losing. So how... On one hand, we're trying to recruit a younger generation and a newer workforce in to replace those people that are retiring. But we also have to keep in mind that as those people are retiring, especially those that have been here for 10, 15, 20, sometimes even 30 years or more, they spent their whole careers here, they're taking all that knowledge with them. And so that really makes me nervous because I work in a facility that's really complex in nature. I haven't even been here quite five years and I feel like every day I'm still learning something else and and I'm realizing this is way more complicated than I ever thought. Um, Mm -hmm. Talking about the chemistry and the physics and the microbiology, it's, you can get really down in the weeds with that. And so how do you replace all that knowledge? You don't get that overnight. And sometimes that knowledge comes from being put into a situation like an emergency, like a hurricane, or even right now, this pandemic, hopefully this is a once in a lifetime thing we're not gonna go through again. But to my point, um, I think it's not just important that we recruit new employees in, but we gotta recruit them in sooner so that they can start to learn some of that. Um, information that these people that are retiring and taking with them because we're losing years and years and years of knowledge. And that really makes me nervous. I 100% agree. As a young professional engineer going into the semiconductor industry, I was on the water side. And the gentleman who knew everything about the facility was retiring six months after I got there. And I was supposed to be filling in part of his job. And I'm like, I need to download your brain. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, because I'm out there with the drawings because I'm new. And I'm he, he goes, oh, yeah, it's not there anymore. And that's not there anymore. And I'm like, oh, crap. What am I supposed to do? Yeah, I think that's a really good point, Shay. Um, you know, especially these small systems. And, you know, they all have their little quirks. They're a lot in Vermont. We have a lot of smaller systems. And some of the operators are both water and wastewater. Mm-hmm. And just for them to be able to share that knowledge that's not happening because a lot of the, the governments that, you know, municipal governments and the town governments do not want to pay for another position to overlap and collect even six months of that knowledge. So that is a very big mm-hmm. problem here. Yeah. You really hit the nail on the head with the quirks comment because every facility has its quirks. Right. And you, <laughs> I think that's operator training 101. And you have to know it. It's not like you can read in a book when, I mean, everybody, you know, those quirks you have to learn. And sometimes it's hard. It's a hard lesson to learn them, but it's a lot easier if somebody can show you and kind of ease you into it. <laughs> Yeah, very much so. Agreed. I want to cover just what kind of approach do we need for gaining people? Both of you are working with different programs. And Shay, why don't you start with us on yours? And then we'll have Paula, we'll have you talk about yours as well. Oh, wow. I do a lot. (laughs) I work with the entire kindergarten through 12th grade spectrum, which is a huge audience. And when I started in this position, a lot of what I did was trying to connect the local school system with the STEM, the science, the technology, the engineering, and the mathematics 
of the actual processes that go on inside this facility. So we would take students on tours and we would point out um, the different processes and then we would try to explain the science behind it. So for instance, when we're talking about the anoxic and the aeration tanks, we're talking about biology and microbiology, but we're also bringing in the nitrogen cycle, which most of the students down here are learning in, in upper middle school grades. So they start to see that connection between the science that they're learning in the classroom that they're like, why are we learning this nitrogen cycle? What does this have to do with anything in the world? And then they go to a facility uh -huh. and it's like, here it is in real life. So trying to make those connections. And I think that gets a lot of students really excited about science. And it also opens their eyes to, you know, careers and things like the water and the wastewater industries that they probably had never even heard of. I mean, I had never really heard of them until I got to college. So, you know, I think it's a really eye-opening experience for them. The other thing that we do is we really yeah. focus on training teachers. Um, it's hard to really capture a student's attention and really get them hooked, um, get the water bug, if you will. So if you train the teachers to feel comfortable or confident enough that they can teach about the water and wastewater processes, even from a very high level, like what is this? What do we do? Why is it important? Um, what are the common behaviors that we do in our households that affect this? They can pass that on to their students. And a lot of times teachers are much more influential than say someone like me who might only interact with a student for 90 minutes. The teacher's spending days uh -huh. and weeks and months and sometimes even years with those students. So we spend a lot of time training the teachers, not just about the science here at our treatment facility, but also emphasizing all the different career options so that they can go back and talk to their students and say, well, you know, for instance, if you're thinking about going to college, there's engineering in this industry. But if you're not thinking about college, you know, you can go into operations, you can go into mechanical, you can go into electrical. So either way, either going through the students or the teachers, we really just try to make that connection to explain to them where their water uh, comes from, how it gets treated and where it goes. And then once it gets treated and reused again. So, you know, everybody talks about the water cycle, but what about the municipal side? So that's really what I focus on. Yeah. I think that's really cool. And you also mentioned to me when we were talking that you have a high school internship program. Yes. Yeah, so we kicked that off last year and then this thing called COVID happened. So that was, that was great. That was all new territory. <laughs> we tried doing that virtually. Uh, I'm, I'm over the virtual thing. So I get it. So last year was the first year that we did that. We had six interns uh, that came from a local high school and that local high school actually has a program where they're trying to teach the students to basically take the exams to either get a D or C license, which are the lowest here in Florida. So they would take the exams before they graduate from high school. And then once they graduate, they can go and do their hours at a facility like this and they can get their licenses. So we're trying to recruit before they even get out of high school. I love it. Get them while they're young. That's right. You know, <laughs> I've actually offered to do a water cycle class or something like that at my son's schools. And the kids are like, no, mom, don't come. <laughs> and I'm like, I'll be cool. I'll be cool. And they're like, you can't be cool, mom. <laughs> but I'm going to try anyways. So Paula, why don't you share with us your program? Your program is supported by the National Rural Water Association and another group as well, correct? Yes, it is. Um, it was put together by National Rural Water Association, who is like a parent organization and each state has an affiliate, uh, you know, a rural water association that, you know, trains and does technical assistance for water and wastewater systems. It's, uh, it's one of those things, especially in a small state like Vermont, where they need us here. All these small systems really need us. We do a lot of good work. But it was originally put together by National Rural Water and the Federal Department of Labor. And so about three or four years ago, they put in for this money, this grant money to start apprenticeship programs in the, in, you know, every state, they gave every, every state the opportunity. Mm -hmm. And I want to say right now, there's like 36 states that are either, either have an apprenticeship program up and running, or they're in the process of getting it up and running. I think a lot of states wanted to see how other states did before they jumped on the bandwagon. Yeah. Yeah. And now it seems, yeah. Yeah, so I think it took off and a lot of other states are like, okay, well, we'll try this. And the one thing with, with programs like this is how long is the funding going to last? How far can we go and all that? So that's always with these, with these uh, programs in the back of your mind. 
But what the apprenticeship program does is we try to recruit, we help, we help uh, municipalities and water systems, wastewater systems uh, recruit people. And um, some are, you know, out of high school. Mm -hmm. We like to get, you know, we work with some of the tech programs in the high schools to see if we can get interest, which is really hard to do. It's really hard to, to get these teenagers to get bit by the water bug, you know? Uh-huh. Um, so, so, you know, there is, there's, we've started a few internships. Um, like, as Shay said, they started their internship program and then COVID hit. Well, that's pretty much the same thing as what happened with us. And so all the relationships that we had started and the work we started kind of went by the wayside when COVID hit and schools shut down. And so now we're picking it back up mm -hmm. and uh, we're trying to get more internships. So we, we recruit people into the programs. And if a water system, wastewater system hires somebody, then you know, that's another way. It doesn't matter how old they are at this point, because we're just looking for people that are interested in this field. It really, you can't be picky with anybody that comes into this field. So we've got some older apprentices, mm -hmm. but they're, you know, they're, they're into it and they're doing great in the program. Our program supports the apprentices, apprenticeships similar to an electrical or like a plumbing apprenticeship program where mm -hmm. they do 4,000 hours over a two year period of time with on the job training. And then they also, they're, they're required to take 288 hours of training, which is provided by uh, Vermont Rural Water Association. Okay. And, um, you know, other, other, you know, like I do a lot of safety training with them and they, they work, they take the uh, Office of Water Programs, um, Sacramento courses. And so we kind of support them in, and so they're not just left there to try to get licensed or certified on their own. So we give them all the support they need mm -hmm. to try to make it a, a successful experience for them. And then hopefully they like the field and they stay in it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, get them trained and then we want to keep them. Yeah, exactly. You mentioned a couple of things in our discussion that I thought was important. You mentioned updating job descriptions. Yes, I, that, I'm glad you brought that up. So one of the things, you know, I work with these systems. I was working with a system not too long ago. And they're, you know, they're trying to do sign-on bonuses. They are, there was even one place that offered pet insurance, <laughs> pet medical insurance. So, hey, you know, that's a common benefit in some places now. Yeah. So, I mean, people are, they're, they're doing whatever they can to really entice people. But one of the things I noticed is we wanted to use the apprenticeship program as a hiring point. So that people that wanted to get hired or filled out an application will see that they have that support to follow through and get trained and everything. And I was looking at some of the, the uh, job descriptions and it looked like an old job description from 30 years ago when I was coming into the field. It was just bullet points with you need to get your class three certification. You need to do this. You know, it was really boring and it had no enticement at all. So <laughs> I know, I mean, I'm like, you know. I, I said, I don't even want this job. You know, you know, <laughs> so, so, you know, we started working on let's, let's change that. Let's, mm -hmm. let's bring that forward and, you know, make people and, you know, interviewees and, you know, applicants part of helping with climate change, part of the big picture, as far as cleaning water, make them part of the solution and really entice them by having them see that water, the water resource field is so important. It's just mm -hmm. not bullet points, get certified, clean clarifiers and stuff like that. It needs to be, you know, <laughs> yeah. you, have to, you have to give it a little bit of glory, you know? So we've been spicing up a lot of job descriptions in hopes that that's going to get more applicant involved and, and want to really be a part of it. So that's a big deal. That's actually creating job descriptions that describe a water plan as protecting public health, supplying people with water that is safe to drink and taste good. Be a part of that. So we're trying to get them to really bite into that, get the water bug thing through newer and updated job descriptions. Well, and I think it makes it more approachable too and makes it sound doable. 
Yes. You know, if I put down, you know, 15 things you have to be able to do before you can even do this job, you're like, well, I haven't even heard of eight of these, (laughs) you know? That's what I mean. It was like, oh my gosh, nobody's going to apply for this. They don't even know what a clarifier is, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's a really good point. Trying to bring people in and retain them through bonuses and from extra insurances or benefits and things like that. I really do think it's going to take some of that. It's going to be a different mindset before it was, here's your job, just do it. Don't talk to us, just get your job done kind of thing. To, hey, you're part of a team and you know these are part of the benefits you get and this is what you need. I think that really needs to change in the industry. It's Yeah, if, if, if I've been to a lot of job fairs trying to advertise water and wastewater. Mm-hmm. I lived out of Alaska for 15 years and I remember going to job fairs because I did similar work up there. And it's so hard to compete with all the other like police, firemen, you know, medical, all those fields are so, they look so glorified and then trying to sell water resources to high school kids. It's like, it's just so hard to do. Yeah, it really is. Well, let's just go to the next thing y'all briefly mentioned was just diversity in the recruits. How do you think diversity will impact those who bring in? That's a question for both of you. Yeah, I think I'll start with this one. Um, my concern with diversity is that diversity is is becoming a checkbox and that we are recruiting just to check off that box. And there's no doubt in my mind that diversity is a challenge in our industry. I think as a society um, and the workforce in general, we have a lot of those challenges. And it's funny because when I think about how do you solve a problem this big, I don't have an easy answer, but I always come back to I think about a time when I was little and I was like in elementary school and all the kids played together on the playground, right? And it didn't matter what you look like or how you dress. We all were just playing and just having fun. There was like this innocence about it, right? And so I keep thinking back to that all the time. And I guess just being an educator, I always wonder what happened? Where where did we go wrong? And I think sometimes, you know, as we grow up, we start to form these opinions and then these opinions of other people somehow become factual and that becomes the truth. And we live our lives believing things that aren't true. Mm -hmm. I don't have an easy solution to that, but as an educator, you can't look at people and just judge them. And I think the same thing when it comes to um, hiring people, right? You, you want to hire the best person because they're the best person for the job, not because they check that box. Um, But from an education standpoint, here in our program, there are challenges trying to get into the worst schools. So whenever you're designing educational programming, you always have to think about how do you reach both the best schools and how do you reach the worst schools, whatever that is defined as, whatever that demographic is. And so there are challenges um, for us trying to get into some of those schools and dare I say, like the rougher areas, Mm -hmm. those schools don't have the same resources as the ones that have more money that are in the nicer neighborhoods. So you have to do more work. And it's not that we're trying, we're not trying. It's just, it's a lot more work sometimes to get in there. You got to put a little extra effort to get into those schools, but you can. And once you do, there, there are a lot of students there that, you know, they're just as hungry for jobs. They're just as hungry for opportunities. And they're just grateful that somebody came to talk to them because now you're trying to kind of level that playing field. Mm -hmm. And so I guess where I'm going with this is it's not just diversity. It's also equity inclusion. You always hear the three DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion. And I think a lot of that goes back to the education system. So at least from my standpoint, when I'm trying to do educational programming, I'm trying to level that field and offer the same services across the field. So I'm always trying to think about the worst case scenario versus the best case scenario. And how do you get to the students in those areas that, you know, maybe their schools don't have the same resources and how do you approach them and offer them the same opportunities to say, look, we have jobs. It doesn't matter if you want to go to college or not, we have jobs. And I, th- I think there's a lot of opportunity there, but not just as an industry, for, for all of us, there's a huge opportunity to try and, and turn that around yeah. and make our industry more diverse. Yeah, um, I have to agree with Shay. It, it can be kind of tough to reach all those corners. Vermont is a really tiny state. Again, I know I keep saying that. Vermont and Florida are <laughs> yeah. kind of like opposite. Yeah. So, I mean, seriously, it's a good look at a state like Florida. You have a lot of diverse population. Even in Vermont, we don't have that. It's not as diverse 
as Florida. But we, you know, when we recruit, we hit high school, we hit all the high schools. It's across the board, pretty much. Trying to get diversity and different people to apply for jobs can be tough. Vermont Rural Water works with Vermont Works for Women, which is a organization that trains women in non-traditional jobs and tries to find work placement for them. So we work with them to try to try to get more women in the field. There's not very many women in this field in Vermont, I have to say. There's probably a lot more, you know, and I'm on a lot of different social media sites where there's a lot more women like in Florida in these water and wastewater jobs. In Vermont, there's not a lot of women. So it's it's really tough again to check boxes. I don't think it's really it's really hard to just check boxes, as Shay said. You can't, you're recruiting, you're advertising to pretty much the same population across the board. And you would hope there would be some diversity. But, you know, there's not, like I said, Vermont is, is different. It's not as a diverse state as Florida. And when I moved from Alaska to here, it was a little shocking because there was no diversity. And it was like, wow, this is uh-huh. weird, you know. In Alaska, we had people from all over the world there. And it was it was really cool. You know, it was, it was so diverse. It was so, and then you moved here to to Vermont. It's not quite that diverse. We advertise across the board. We go to schools. We try to get more women in the field right now because there's not, there's a lot of conferences and stuff for high school kids, Uh women, you know, that we, we also go to those to try to get them in non-traditional jobs. So that's where we're at with the diversity thing right now. It's, it's a tough it's tough to try to get diverse people to apply for these jobs. And I I mean, I don't even know where to start with trying to get more diverse applicants and stuff like that. That's, that's a whole different (laughs) problem. Well, both of you have mentioned you have outreach to schools and not only just people in general, but to let everyone know that there's opportunities here. Like you said, Shay, with colleges and Paula, you're talking about working with professional organizations. I love that, you know, Sometimes it's connecting to the right networks that brings in the people we need. I mean, we need diverse experience, you know, like someone from maybe rural to urban or urban to rural can be a really big change as well. So I think it's important to bring it in. Mm-hmm. We need better ideas. We've got newer challenges that we haven't had in the past, where before it was just enough to get rid of nitrogen. Oh, well, now you have to get rid of phosphorus. And oh, now you have to get rid of PFAS and microplastics. I mean chemistries and pharmaceuticals and everything that keeps going on. So without diverse ideas, I don't think we're going to get there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Something else I wanted to cover that was something Paula, you and I discussed was the generational gap. And I kind of wonder where my generation disappeared to, but I talked to a lot of operators and I've been to over 300 facilities across the U.S. And I cannot tell you how many times I've heard operators say, don't get a job like I have go to college and get a quote unquote real job. That was a lot more back when I first started. Nowadays, they're like, no, come get a job like me. And I remember hearing that don't get a job like me. And I was like, why not? This is great. This is water. Is that something you guys are hearing or have heard in the past? I have not heard that myself. Um, I think most of the students that I interact with, especially high school, it's not so much about going and getting a college degree. I think a lot of them are influenced by popular culture, which is really frustrating yeah. to me at the same time. <laughs> they say things like, oh, I would love to be a social media influencer and travel the world and take pictures, or I want to be a pop star. I want to be a uh, athlete, you know, and I ask them why all the time. And, and usually it comes down to money and fame. Which, you know, when I was young, I wanted to be a rock star too. Why not? You know, I can't sing, but why not? It's just a dream, right? (laughs) So I get it. And when you're that young, I try to think about when I was that age, I didn't know what I was doing. I had no idea what bills were. I had no idea what adulting was about and whether it was going to be easy or hard because I had never done it before. So it's really hard to sell careers to students who really aren't in that position and they're going to change their minds, right? Just think about Mm -hmm. when I went to college, I changed majors twice. I didn't, you know, I thought I wanted to be one thing and then, oh no, that doesn't, oh, I hate this class. Now I don't like this. And so they're young, Mm -hmm. you have to forgive them. And that's that, but that's a really great point 
because for students who don't know if they want to go to college or not, for instance, if they come and work for Pinellas County Utilities, we do tuition reimbursement. Mm. So I always tell students at career fairs, I'm like, you don't have to decide right now. You've you've got your life to decide, but you can come and you can start working now. You can get some experience and then the county will help pay for you to go back to college if you decide that you want to do something different. Of course, we'd love for you to stay in this industry. And I always say that. But, you know, again, you have to be forgiving when you're that young, you don't know what you want to do, you're going to change careers, you're going to do things differently. So you have to be forgiving at the same time, I guess. I love that point. I won't tell you what my job fills were, but I had some ideas and they weren't what I ended up doing. <laughs> you didn't want to be a rock star? Oh, well, or what? <laughs> no, I did dance and sing with a few songs with my hairbrush. Yes, absolutely. Paula, how about you? What do you see? So I have seen that in a few cases, um, Heather, I know what you're talking about, but for the most part, I'll tell you what, in Alaska and in Vermont, it's actually, you try to hire relatives of operators and people that work in these small towns. As a matter of fact, I, I signed on an apprentice um, on Tuesday and he you know, is from that town. He's a volunteer fire department. He's a high school senior. So he's in a work study program. Mm -hmm. So we try to hire the relatives of these operators that have been so dedicated for 40 years in their, you know, in their towns and their water and wastewater systems. Those, those connections, you know, relatives of people that know what the benefits that their relatives are getting that it's good pay. It's, you know, mm -hmm. steady work. It's never, you're never going to get laid off. You're, you've got all good benefits. We try to focus on more relatives and, and, and that usually ends up, you know, I, I there's a lot of, um, you know, and it's all mostly sons. You don't see very many daughters. I'd like to say, I know a few daughters that have followed in their, you know, mother's or father's footsteps, but it's usually the fathers and the sons, but that tends to be the best job recruitment right there is trying to get somebody that's a family member because they they know the benefits mm -hmm. the generation gap uh, and you were talking about that that's a little that's a tough one with the generation gap um, you know we get a lot of older operators that don't communicate well with the new operators which that's the biggest generation gap I think but as far as I know we try to actually advertise do you know anybody that's looking for work you know and, and, and sometimes word of mouth in these small states like we're in kind of works pretty good. Mm -hmm. I really think that's a great point as well. One thing that you mentioned, the communication differences, I think one thing the younger workers bring in is that they're just more savvy, technologically advanced, you know, willing to work with computers and so forth like that. I won't mention any names, but I know several who have said, look, I've never used a computer and I won't before I retire. I mean, <laughs> you're like, Oh, okay. So you're never going to get skated then. Things that makes the work easier in some ways. And sometimes just it's required for more sophisticated treatment. I think the younger workers, we could pull them in and say, hey, we do programming. We do program logic. We do controls and so forth like that. I think that's appealing. Yeah, I think, I think you're absolutely right. That's appealing to a lot of them. When I started in this field, and I'm not, that kind of ages me, but we had no computers. Uh -huh. <laughs> we had a lot of, we had some old analog stuff and, uh -huh. uh, you know, everything was manual. You manually turned valves to backwash and, you know, in smaller systems and it was analog. And then as I, you know, progressed in my career, I started teaching a lot and I found myself having to teach GATA the easy way, but I also had to teach these, the newer generation, how to manually do it. If the SCADA goes down, because you can't just rely on SCADA because mm -hmm. eventually as we're seeing now with all the, the different computer hacker and hacking going on that you can't rely, it has, you have to have a backup plan. You can't just rely on SCADA. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I found myself teaching the SCADA systems, but also the backup, how to do it manually. It's like a middle of a generation there. You got the generation that knows how to do it physically, uh, manually, but they're not so good on the computers. And now you have the new people that know how to do the computers, but can they manually do it if something happens? It's good, but you kind of need that both. As Shay said, you kind of need the, the information that the older generation has mm -hmm. to carry through to this newer generation 
otherwise we can be in a lot of trouble. And that's one of the areas that concerns me. I will second that when we bring younger students here to the facility, they always get excited when they go in the control room in the operations center and they see all the computer screens, they see all the SCADA screens, they all get really excited um, because I think a lot of them, when they first come into this facility, you know, they, they always ask questions like, do you touch this stuff? Do you, do you actually turn those things? So just kind of to Paula's point, like, do you actually turn that valve? Like they point to it, like you touch that. Um, and, and I have to explain to them, you know, a lot of this is, is computerized, but yes, there's going to be times when your computers break. And so it's, it, it's kind of an interesting conversation and, but they really do enjoy that technological piece. But it also concerns me that I think back when I was in school, you had to learn how to do calculations without a calculator. And I see so many people that are so savvy at doing everything on their phones and their calculators that, you know, I'm like that one person that's holding up the line in the grocery store because I'm trying to calculate how much change I'm going to give back before the cashier gives it back to me. Cause I'm like, I got to practice my math. Like I got to practice yes. my math. Like I'm going to hold up the line while I calculate my change here. And that's something that I worry about because I think from an education standpoint, we do so much on computers. We do so much on tablets. We do so much on our phones that sometimes it's just frustrating even to communicate with the younger generations. They're better at texting. Sometimes having a face-to-face conversation is kind of awkward. You know, it's, it's almost like, did you forget how to talk? Mm-hmm. We, and I'm not picking on them. It's just they were raised in a whole different time when they had phones their entire lives. They had cell phones their whole lives. And so it's going to be interesting to see how we kind of transition from one generation to the next because we already see it now. Those generations, kind of as Paula said, mm-hmm. we're in the middle, right? Between going from basically no technology to now it's all technology. But there is definitely a lot of interest, especially with the younger generations in the technology piece, because that's what they grew up doing. That's what they knew. So for them, that's that's really cool. Well, we're starting to talk now more about the training people into the industry. So let's transition to that as well. As far as exam prep, I know I teach operating classes and taking the test, you know, test taking skills and things like that. What do you guys work with or what do you do to prep? So here in Florida, we do a lot with the Sacramento books. That's one of the manuals that we use primarily. We also work through the University of Florida, uh, the TRIO Center. Mm -hmm. They do operator training. We also work with our local technical school, uh, Pinellas Technical College, for instance. So there's different avenues for our operators to go to. Some like the book, you know, it's kind of like study on your own versus uh, P-Tech or Pinellas Technical or UF are more in person. So they go there and they have that one-on-one. Those are probably the three biggest ones that we use. Yeah, and our program, the apprenticeship program, the thing I like about it is, as Shay said, we use, a, we use the SAC. We were just doing all in-person classes, but then again, I know we keep saying this, but COVID hit. COVID. So, yeah, COVID, COVID, <laughs> COVID and uh, COVID ruins everything. <laughs> and so um, so we we started using the, the correspondence type SAC courses, Office of Water Programs. And so they're, you know, they go through those books and they need to go through those books anyway, but this is more accountability. We also, I do a lot of training. I do a lot of one-on-one training. I do exam prep. I do what's called boot camp stuff. We do exam, 50-hour exam prep courses, and I've been doing these for like 21 years. Mm -hmm. So for both water and wastewater, and so a lot of our apprenticeship is the uh, exam prep is done in that manner. And then our our operators across Vermont rely on Vermont Rural Water for a lot of their exam prep, both water and wastewater. But we also, you know, like I said, we offer, I try to give them that one-on-one, I'll tell you what, that goes a long ways with people that have a hard time testing or maybe have learning disabilities. So we try Uh to take all that into consideration. And the one thing I like about my job, and I think uh, Liz Royer, our executive director recruited me is because she knows I'm a trainer and I can actually, you know, do a lot of this stuff, a one-on-one and hopes that it'll be a more successful program for exam prep. And I'll second that the one-on-one is definitely more effective. And that's why we brought the interns in last year. We, We had five students from the local high school that were studying the Sacramento books to take the exam. But it's important that they actually work alongside some of the operators and see what they're reading about. The book is one thing, videos are another thing, but to actually go out into the field, to go into the plants and have somebody walk you through it and guide you and say, this is what I do every day. This is having the operator's 
perspective is it's night and day than just reading a book. So they need that in addition. They can't just read the book. So for us, we found that having that additional one-on-one time was a huge difference, like huge difference. As far as the on-the-job training with this program, I actually use the ABC exam is the exam that's used as a national exam, and they have need-to-know checklists. So I actually use the need-to-know checklist for those exams as part of my on-the-job training. So the mentor and the apprentice both have copies of this, and they have to understand how a clarifier works. So the on-the-job training part of it, the mentor needs to take the apprentice out to the uh, clarifier and explain how things work. So it kind of ties in full circle, as Shay said, you know, that on the job training and and showing them so that when they're taking the test and they hear the word clarifier, they picture that clarifier. They're not trying to picture words in a book, but they're actually seeing that clarifier in their mind when they're answering that question. Mm -hmm. So that's what we try to do with the on the job training part of it is bring it back, tie it right back to that exam in that manner. Well, and you also mentioned safety previously the ocean, so forth like that, that safety training. A lot of it is in person. (laughs) You can read, wear this glove, but being out in the field, you're like, crap, that's back in the truck. It's there. Why should I do it? That kind of thing. Yeah, that's a big thing. I'm going to take a guess, but I bet Shay, they have a really good safety program. The bigger municipalities, bigger states in Vermont, there's like no safety that goes on. And it's because the municipalities and the, they just don't have money for a position for a safety position. So there's not a lot of safety training that happens. Mm-hmm. You know, I worked up in the oil fields in Alaska and, and 20% of my time was on health, safety, and environmental issues for training, you know, but here it's different. So with our apprenticeship program, we make sure that they get the, the general industry 10 hour OSHA class, and then they get confined space and they also get uh, trench and excavation. Those are, there's the focus for. So we make sure that they get all the safety training that a lot of other other operators that have been hired never see. So that's a big plus for, because I can also, when I'm training the new apprentice, I make sure that all their whole staff is there. Anybody that wants to attend can attend for free. So Mm -hmm. there's a big draw there. Well, yeah, it's so important. I just... That's something, I mean, like, there's been times when I've been, I don't even want to see you doing that. So go get the glasses or go get the gloves or whatever. We have a really good safety program. Um, We have a safety officer and we have a whole risk department. And yes, that does come with being a larger municipality. But I see more of an issue in complacency when you have people who have worked here for so many years who have done it this way. And then a new person comes along and says, "Okay, from now on, we're changing it Mm -hmm. from now on. Everybody's going to wear puncture resistant gloves when you're handling all the pumps and suddenly um, the employees are like, wait, no, no, wait, no. Now I got to do another thing. And it, it sounds terrible to say that, but there is this sense of complacency. And it, it, I haven't just seen it here. I've seen it in some places, but you just have to almost, dare I say, like call people out on it. You have to be like, listen, you, you have to wear those gloves. It's not just for you. It's because you're going to go home to your families. You could potentially take something. And I always have to remember to tell people, you know, you're not just putting yourself at risk. You're going to go home and expose that to your family and your friends. And don't, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't put them through that stress either. And so I always say that the the sooner you can get them, like the younger you can get them, Mm -hmm. the sooner you can get it. Once it becomes a habit, you know, it has to become like a habit. You don't think about it. When I walk in, I'm putting on my gloves. When I get on the golf cart, I'm taking my gloves off. Whatever that protocol is, it has to be like so ingrained in their brains that it's like, it's just a routine. Put on your gloves. This is when you take them off. And you just, you know, when you see people that are not doing it, you have to get on them. You can't be afraid to say, hey, that's dangerous. You know, when I see people wearing gloves and they're touching door handles, I say, wait, wait a minute. Now I'm going to come along with a group of students and touch that door handle. Like, that's not right. So you have to have those hard conversation sometimes where you're like safety isn't just about you it's about me and it's about everybody else and and it's it's a tough conversation to have but I can't stress it enough because we do work with wastewater at this facility so we have to take it seriously there's just no excuses yeah and and the thing Shay is that they don't realize that they're doing that so by you telling them that you're not harping on them but you're actually educating them and they probably just didn't realize that And a lot of new people that start jobs, they don't teach safety in high school. And it's not just common sense a lot of times. Mm -hmm. So 
it's, it's, you know, we try to get them as young as possible and get them trained. And, you know, the younger generation, hopefully it is second nature, just put your hard hat, your gloves, your hearing protection, all that stuff. You just do that because it's not a, it's not a pain in the, but it's just something that you do. It's part of your job, you know, and, but then you also have that older generation. This is where that generation comes in right now. We have uh, a generation that the, the saying is I've, I've never worn safety gear before. Why would I start now? Nothing's ever happened to me. So there's a lot of, you've got that conflicting, the older generation that doesn't really want to, that kind of ruins the whole safety environment by not wanting to comply. So that is also a big challenge in, uh, you know, where we're at with the different generations and water plants, waste yeah. plants. Yeah, sometimes it's a whole new perspective. Yeah, go ahead, Shay. I'll bring up a good example. When this, when COVID started and we started doing tours again, I started asking students how they washed their hands. And I was just blown away by how many students could not properly wash, like they didn't know the procedures to properly wash their hands. Like if you ever watched a surgeon wash their hands, they wash the tops, they wash the bottom, they kind of go between their fingers. There's like a whole technique to this, right? But more importantly, there's a time issue. You're you're supposed to do it for so many seconds, right? And you see these kids put soap on their hands and like, da, 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 I'm done. And I'm like, no, 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 no. That's not how it works. Didn't anybody tell you you're supposed to sing happy birthday? And they're looking at me like, what is she talking about? And so it was, it was a real eye-opening for me because I thought, well, man, when I was back in school, did anybody ever explain to me that I'm supposed to wash my hands for 30 seconds? Or did at some point, did I forget or did? nobody tell me and I just keep scratching my head thinking wow does does anybody actually tell them that you know it takes more than two seconds to put soap on your hands to actually make it work you know so I think about things like that and, and I think about things like hand sanitizer so a lot of our employees were saying well when I'm out in the field I, there's no water there's no soap I'm just going to use sanitizer so I would drive by and I would see their cars parked in the full sun with bottles of hand sanitizer on the dashboard with the sun beating down on them and I'm like uh okay well here's another really good lesson you know <laughs> do you leave your hand sanitizer that has a lot of alcohol in it on your dashboard in the sun it's probably not a good idea so again there was a lot of lessons learned but I didn't even think about all until I'm in until you're in that situation then you start to realize whoa these are the things that we should have addressed before but it was really eye-opening from the COVID standpoint to say I didn't realize things like washing hands and how to properly store hand sanitizer things like that I never thought about until I was in that situation and I'm like oh maybe this is why COVID's going around you know (laughs) well in defense of my mother I know I was taught right I just think as a kid i well, that, yeah, that's a whole different issue. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah, yeah. So that was my issue. But um, okay. Now, so we're getting them trained and getting them mindful of safety and stuff. How do we keep them once we've got them? I mean, there's a lot of things you guys are doing. So let's cover that as well. I'm going to say with the newer generation, it's financial. They like, you know, well, everybody likes money, but <laughs> I, I think money is going to be the number one. As far as benefits, I don't think, you know, a lot of generation, the younger generation are not thinking of retiring. They're more thinking what they're making now. So I think money is a big thing. Obviously, the benefits are, you know, good. But again, I, I really think the younger generation they, they just like a good paycheck. Some facilities, again, I go keep, you know, reverting back to Vermont being such a small state. There's not like a ladder to progress up in a lot of places. There might be one or two operators. You know, I think the money really has to be there. A lot of operators have to do on-call work and they don't get paid enough to do it. So there has to be a lot more incentive financially to get people to want to be on call. Uh, one of the main job requirements, I think, with water and wastewater is being on call or working a certain amount of weekends every once a month or something. Yeah. So I really think the money is the big thing. Education is another one. Somebody had mentioned that, you know, I think, Shay, you said that you guys have, uh, you know, the college education part of it. I think that would be a big opportunity for a lot of operators, too, is to, you know, further their education and be able to go to school, maybe online or we don't, you know, it's kind of hard for to work and go full time, but you can do a lot of online programs and stuff. I will definitely say that students recognize money 
that's probably the easiest thing. I think when anybody goes looking for a job, the first thing we do is we look to see how much it pays, right? Because you don't want to waste your time applying for something if it doesn't pay enough money to pay the bills. And I think students are the same way. They're, they're kind of looking for the highest number, but that's also, in many ways, I feel like it's very misleading. I feel like that's what they've been taught to look for. They've been taught to look at the numbers and say, can I live off of this? And really, if you think about it, even when I think when I went to college and they, you would sit down and you would pick a major, then they would give you this list of all these career options. And the first thing you would see next to it before it even explained what the job was, was how much money it would make. So I think we've been conditioned to think that the first thing we should look at is the money, the money, the money. So when I talk to students, I, you know, I try to meet them where they are instead of going right to the money question, just like when a student says, how much money do you make before I even answer that question, which I don't give them a number. I tell them it's public record, right? It's government. I, I try to meet them where they are and asking them, what kind of environment do you want to work in? Do you want to work in a really stressful, demanding environment? Are you looking for something that's a little bit more chill, dare I say, you know, and then I kind of talk to them about the benefits of working for a utility. For instance, we're not the most stressful environment. There's situations now that's situational, yeah. but for the most part, <laughs> you can, you can be pretty chill some days and then other days are crazy. And then I tell them, you know, things like you get your uniform, so you don't have to buy clothes, you get boot allowance, so you don't have to buy shoes. You get college tuition reimbursement, you get retirement, you get dental, I, you know, you go down the list and when you kind of give them this whole big picture, I remind them that all these things cost money. I'm like, all these things cost money, but if your dental insurance is free, then that's more money in your pocket. So you have to kind of walk them through it and say that all these things are saving you money too. And then you'll hear them go, you'll see like the little lights go off as I go. Oh, oh, that actually sounds kind of cool. But again, you have to kind of walk them through it and meet them where they are instead of just saying, well, this is the amount of money that you're going to make. Mm -hmm. Because not everybody is motivated by money. I think that's just the way that we've been conditioned to think, look at the dollar sign first and then ask questions. But I also explain to students that it's not always about money. It's sometimes it's about the work-life balance. It's about working in an environment that you are passionate about or working with people that are like your second family. There's more to it than just that, but they haven't really thought about that. So when Mm -hmm. you bring it up, they kind of look at you and think, oh, I never really thought about that. So they're open to it. But yes, I agree with Paula. The first thing they look at is the money. So we've got to do a better job of not just putting dollar signs next to the positions, because if we do that, it's going to be really hard for us to compete against the private sector. They have the money. We don't. So how do we level that? Well, we have to tell them about all the other wonderful benefits and opportunities that come with that jobs. I have a son who just changed jobs and I've been encouraging him to do so simply because of the SWAT teams, the dumpster fires and a sort of drug use in the area. He took a job that he didn't get as much pay, but he had consistent hours, consistent location, you know, like higher degree of safety. So I think once you start rounding out all those other opportunities, it really becomes a lot more attractive. Now, both of you have mentioned continuing education or opportunities to continually train. How do you think of that as a benefit? Well, I think a lot of, and again, uh, I keep comparing Vermont to, to Florida. The smaller municipalities don't have a safety budget. They don't have a training budget. The first thing that goes, like literally, I worked for uh, you know a bigger, one of the biggest water municipalities in Vermont, and they had a $600 training budget for like 25 operators. You know? So, so the, you know, that's, you know, that they're not thinking about as an employee, if your employer is not willing to put money into you to train you, you need to, you need continuing education to keep up your certifications anyway. But a lot of people want to learn. They want to go to good classes. They want to go. And I don't think there's a lot of opportunity in that. So if, if I, when I work with a new employer on an apprenticeship program, the, one of the first things I look at is what I ask them, what are you going to pay them? And Department of Labor wants to see four quarterly raises through our program because it's a two-year program. So we break it up into four quarters. And so the starting salary, you might see a small town. I remember I worked with one small town and I think they wanted to start this apprentice off at $13 an hour. 
and to give him a 25 cent an hour raise, they were the board, you know, the select board was him and Han and they didn't even want to give this kid. He jumped. He went to a bigger municipality. He's one of my apprenticeship, you know, uh, my first apprentice. Mm-hmm. He was making $13 an hour. He went to another one to make $27 an hour. Oh, so. You know, um, yeah, there's a big, so, and I also had the same conversation with him as Shay was talking about where this little municipality that you're working at, you know, is you're, it's a good atmosphere. It's happy. It's less stressful, you know, and he agreed with me, but he went for the money end of things and he's young, he's starting a family. So, you know, that was more important mm-hmm. for him. But I think that if a municipality has to put training money into people they have to invest in employees and make the employee feel like they're worth the money, you know, and a lot of them in Vermont do not do that. I think that is a condition a lot of places see. It really is. And I also think there's a lack of utilization of professional associations that kind of help you participate or volunteer or just get training from those as well. But I think that professional associations would really support that as well. Yeah, for sure. Now, someone mentioned the exhibit halls of expos being free. I think that was a great idea. Yeah, that was me. We had our last Florida Water Resources Conference uh, before COVID, whenever that was. (laughs) (laughs) They were locally over in Tampa and they opened up the exhibit halls for free. Uh, You can't go to the technical sessions without paying, but I've discovered over the years that a lot of these statewide conferences allow free passes into their exhibit hall so we sent a bunch of our employees over there and they had a good old time they came back and some of them came back really excited oh I saw this really cool pump I saw this cool grinder or I learned about this or I got some contact information to talk to this person and I thought that was really great and I wish we'd do more of that but it just depends where the conferences are so it's a little harder to justify paying to send employees to a free exhibit hall if it's all the way on the other side of the state or if it's in another state. But if it's locally or, you know, a county or two over, it's it's one easy way that we can get mm-hmm. those employees, especially our operators and our mechanics and our electricians that probably wouldn't go to a really big technical conference with engineers. They would say, well, that's not our crowd. They, they want to see the pumps. They want to see the toys. They want to see the new equipment that's really what grinds their gears. Yeah. So if we can find more of those, I would say that's a huge perk because our guys really enjoyed it. They wouldn't stop talking about it. And the free hats, you know, the hats are cool. <laughs> the free hats. I attend a lot of shows and I have to say, I enjoy walking the floor and yes. just learning. There's so much to learn just from suppliers and vendors to the industry. I enjoy that. <laughs> I send pictures home to my kids And my middle child is like, I want one. And I'm like, you cannot have one of these. (laughs) I try to find the vendors that have built equipment in the facility. I'll recognize the name and I'll say, oh, they built the grinder. And I'll go walk over and I'll just ask them how it works. Mm -hmm. I'll I'll ask them to walk me through it step by step because I'm not an operator. So it's kind of nice to talk to the manufacturers because they'll explain the theory behind it, why it was designed this way, what the capacities are. So you hear it from one perspective. And then when you go back and you talk to your operators, you hear a different perspective because they'll tell you how it really works. Yeah, (laughs) You get the kind of like the theory and the actual practice. So for that reason, I love exhibit halls. Yeah. And that, that shows that you care about your employees enough to pay for them to go to a conference or something. And again, that doesn't happen a lot. And that just sends that message, well, you're not important enough to us to send you to that, you know? This kind of leads more into morale where, hey, you're wanted, you're needed. We want to train you. We feel you're important to invest in. I think that all comes back to the morale and them being willing to stay in a place. Yes, that was kind of my big takeaway when I think about what it takes to retain employees it always to me it comes down to morale do you feel respected do you feel safe do you feel fairly compensated do you feel appreciated you know those are the check boxes that I'm looking for that I would decide is it time to go or is it here to stay yeah (laughs) working in a facility like this there's a lot of different personalities here but over the time, I can say that all those d- different personalities are still like, it's like this giant family, whether it's functional or dysfunctional is a whole different discussion, but it's like a big family, you know, you look out for each other. And I think most of us who work here, we have to feel those things. Everybody has to feel a certain way. You have to feel safe. You have to feel respected. Otherwise, do you really want to be in that environment? So 
all those things are important. I mean, I have a long list, I have to say, if I had to be honest of what it takes to retain, but I think morale is probably the most important thing to me. I see a lot of people switching jobs right now Mm -hmm. during COVID. And I don't think that this was a decision that just came overnight. I think a lot of these were kind of like these little slow fires that were starting inside of them that were burning with time. And then (laughs) finally they had enough, the stress of it, and they moved on. So I worry about things like that too. I wonder how we're going to get through COVID and still retain some of our employees because kind of going back to the beginning, I've seen a couple people decide, you know what, I was going to retire in two years. Yeah, today looks good. And that was, you know, kind of the end of it. And so now you have all these newer, younger people coming in. And again, they're brand new. They don't have all that knowledge of working in this specific facility. And this facility definitely has its quirks. So we have challenges either way. I think these are all great topics, and I'm sure listeners will have plenty to add to the list as well. As we're coming up to the end of this, was there anything else y'all wanted to mention? I think we've covered a lot. Yeah. um, Yeah. (laughs) uh, (laughs) I I love Shay's program. I I love her job. I think it's a great job. And I think, again, she's right. It's, It's not work. You love what you do. And I've been in, I, you know, with this apprenticeship program, I actually took a pay cut, Mm -hmm. but I love what I'm doing and I'm totally, I'm just not as stressed as I would be in a different environment. So I think that makes all the difference in the world. I will second that. I've, I've had people ask me, Oh, when are you going to move on? When are you, when are you going to get a higher position? Are you going to go for a director or something? I'm like, no, this is too much fun. I mean, it's not all about the pay. It it wouldn't be because then I would have left by now, but having the opportunity to work with kids every day, is, I don't know. I don't even know how to put words to it. It's, it's pretty special. If you can Mm -hmm. give a tour to 25 kids and even just two walk away thinking, wow, this is some really cool stuff. You feel like you've done a lot and I don't even know how to express that impact. So it's, it's a really cool thing to do education. And I think what Paula is doing is just as important because we need more people in this industry and we need trained, skilled people. And that's really awesome to go from doing operations to now training people. I wish I could say I was doing that. I, I haven't really dabbled in the operation side. So I, I really envy that about you. So it's really cool. But either way, we have a lot of work to do. We have a lot of, lot of, lot of work to do. Yeah. And we're going to have to get to it fast yeah. today, not tomorrow. Bye. <laughs> well, with that, I want to start with our Wanda's water tidbit for the day. If that works for you, ladies. Yes. This is the part of the show that I mentioned before that I dedicate to my mom who sends me trivia over the years about stuff. And today I want to talk about coral reefs. I know that is a complete departure from what we've been talking about, but that's kind of the point of the tidbit, (laughs) something completely different. So with coral reefs, my first introduction to coral reefs was when my dad was stationed at Kadena Air Force Base in Okinawa. And he would take his kids out snorkeling in the East China Sea, and we would walk across the reefs if the tide was low, or float over it while sucking in my gut as far as I could to get to the open water. And so my first impressions of coral reefs was that everything was trying to stab you. The reef was sharp, sea urchins were pointy, although pretty cool when they moved. And you had to avoid the lionfish with the stingers. And it wasn't until I was older and that I could appreciate what I was looking at is that it is a biome, a whole ecological space that was actually very sophisticated and teeming with more life. But that was really more than my little nine-year-old mind could handle. Have y'all had an opportunity to be on a reef or before or snorkeling or something? I have not. I don't think so. I was trying to think about this when I saw that you had coral reefs. I was like, I don't think I've actually seen one before. And I live in Florida. The reason why I (laughs) wanted to talk about coral reefs is that they are talking about the current struggle the reefs are having in water because of either contaminations or stressors or other environmental issues. But there's a new study by the University of British Columbia that they did on the impact of climate change for coral reefs. And They found that the coral and the more polluted and high traffic water handled the extreme heat events or climate change events better than the more remote untouched reefs. I thought that was really interesting because they've built up some kind of resistance or resilience to it. Or as my mom says, a fighting spirit. (laughs) (laughs) And I think it's just maybe like the worst workout of your life prepares you for something else that comes up. 
<laughs> I don't know. Adapt and overcome, I think, is a, in these times, you see a lot of different species having to do that, a lot of different environments having to adapt and try to overcome. I've seen deer beside the interstate looking in both directions to cross uh-huh. instead of just jumping. So they, you know what I mean? It's, it's an adapting, I think all kinds of animals and it sounds like the coral reefs are even adapting and it's toughening them up. Unfortunately, that has to happen. Mm-hmm. Well, I look at the groups, the National Oceanic Atmospheric Administration and the work they're doing to help grow and protect them. And I think it's really a partnership amongst people that enjoy the water, enjoy the reefs, and those of us that do contribute to the ocean. Some of the facilities on the coast do that. You know, we want to be part of the answer, not part of the stress. But they've got a really cool videos if you ever want to see how they actually grow reefs with cement, zip ties, and nails and so forth like that. And I highly recommend it. It's quite the rabbit hole to go down. But if you're interested or have a boring Friday night, we'll put all the links into our show notes and you can read about it yourselves. Mike Rowe did a Dirty Jobs episode where they make structures for coral reefs and they bring them out and they drop them. That was kind of an interesting thing to watch. They were like made out of clay or something, maybe cement. Okay. Maybe concrete or something like that, but they were made to go out and they would drop them to help in that growth the coral reefs and stuff. That's really cool. That was kind of interesting. Cool. And I will look for that and do what we can to find that and throw it into the show notes as well. Yeah, I think students would be really interested in that. They they really like oceanography and marine biology is is a really interesting thing. You know, they they like animals. So anything that's living is kind of cool. I don't know about plants. Maybe I shouldn't say that, but they would probably find that cool if we could link that somehow to to talk about how coral reefs are responding to pollution because the more relevant it is to them you know the more they're going to understand they're going to say wait we're not going to put up with this this isn't okay let's try to do something about this so that's really cool i think that would be great to share with the schools hey one more idea ding ding ladies i really want to thank you both for joining me today a lot of conversation a lot of thoughts and i really appreciate your time and that you accepted a call from someone new (laughs) it wasn't the car warranty calling you so i appreciate you answering it (laughs) but if any of you have questions Uh, would like contact information or other links, you'll find them in the show notes. And with that, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. This was fun. Thank you for listening to the Water Break Podcast, brought to you by Probiotic Solutions. Probiotic Solutions offers a broad-spectrum line of biostimulant nutrient products for bioremediation of water, wastewater, and soil. Find more information about our products and the show notes for this podcast at probiotic.com.